controversy begins in Revelation chapter 6 with, with how you approach the text fundamentally. Right? In fact, the, the question I receive most often right, from those outside the church is about this. Right? So this experience I've had many, many times, someone I don't, whatever, doesn't come to the church and uh, ask me about church and ministry, and if they're, they're in the know a little bit, they, they ask, well, so what are you preaching through nowadays? And uh, when I say I'm preaching through Revelation, the next thing that comes out of their mouth, four times out of five times, says, oh, Revelation. Oh, well, what are you? Are you pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, almost, what, what, like, what are you? Like, that's the first thing that people always ask me when I say I'm preaching through Revelation. They want to know when. How do I view the end? They want to know when. They want to see how it, how it all works out. Now, for some of you this morning, you may not even know what post-trib is. You may not even know what ah-mill or pre-mill or, or post-mill is. We'll get to that. Hopefully next week we'll, we'll get to that. Others of you may have strong opinions about these things, and your, your feathers may be ruffled next week. The next week's after that, so we dig into Revelation. That's okay. But I want us to understand a little perspective of Revelation, particularly as it approaches the, the wind question. I feel like my message this morning is really going to set the tone in the next several months as we work our way through the rest of Revelation. My message this morning is entitled, When Will These Things Be? Because that's fundamentally the, the question that that people are asking when they ask me about the tribulation or they ask me about the millennium, right? They, they want to know about when. And curiously, this question about when will these things be was asked by the disciples of Jesus. So I want to begin this morning, not in Revelation, but open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. This chapter begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving the temple where Jesus had just... Um, Jesus had just condemned the, the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And as they're leaving this uh, temple area, um, the disciples pointed out to him all the beautiful buildings of the architecture. And uh, Jesus said to them, oh, you, you see all these buildings? Matthew chapter 22, 24, verse 2. You see all these? Don't, do you not? Great architecture, like a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Oh, look at how beautiful that is. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus here prophesied of the destruction of the temple, which we know came about in A.D. 70, when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed everything on the Temple Mount. There's kind of a curious side note to this. There's a great debate nowadays about where the temple actually was because there's no archaeological evidence. The Romans came and they wiped every stone off of the Temple Mount. We have no idea where exactly on the Temple Mount the temple exactly was. And that was going to happen in A.D. 70. The disciples didn't know that, but we, in retrospect, know that that's what Jesus was, was talking about. Now, after Jesus and his disciples crossed the Kidron Valley, arrived, arrived at the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him with a few questions that then set up what's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And we read in chapter 24, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The title of my message comes right here from Matthew chapter 4, 24, verse 3. When 
will these things be? And Jesus responded to this question by totally ignoring it. Hugely significant. If you read the rest of the chapter, you see Jesus described the signs taking place before his coming. He described many false prophets who will arise. Verse 5. He'll describe the rewards and famines and earthquakes. Verses 6 through 8. He'll describe the persecutions going to take place against the believers. Verse 9. How lawlessness will come. He'll speak about the need to flee Jerusalem, verses 16 through 20, because things will be so much worse than anything that's ever taken place or that will take place. Jesus describes the, his coming as comparable to the lightning that flashes across the sky, verse 27. And all will see and know when he returns. Jesus describes the sun darkening and the fa- scars falling from the skies. And then he says in verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He describes how the angels will gather up the elect. But in all these things, he did not say a word about when. It's been 2,000 years and Jesus still hasn't returned. I think there's a lesson to be learned here. When the disciples are asked, when will this be? Jesus says, well, there'll be some signs. But concerning the wind, silence. In fact, a few verses later in chapter 24, verse 36, he says this, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So he's starting to hit the wind. The wind. He says, when will these things be? Okay, concerning that day and hour, nobody knows. So why do you ask a question, or why do you seek an answer to a question that nobody knows, is what he's saying. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then Jesus continues his discourse by describing how many would be surprised when he returns. So he says, nobody knows when it's going to happen, but when it comes, it's going to be like the days of Noah, when the flood came and took away a bunch of people in judgment. He said in verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. He says in verse 41, he says, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. He says, therefore, verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The fact he is coming is secure. When he's coming, we don't know. When will these things be? We don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Then in Matthew 25, he gives three parables that teach us to be ready for when he comes. The ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goat judgments. And each of these parables, he's, he's encouraging people, right? Those who are faithfully serving their masters are ready for his return. Others are foolish, not ready for the return. So when Jesus was asked about his coming, just, just consider this. He says in verse 42, he says, stay awake. He says in verse 44, to be ready. He says in chapter 25, verse 12, watch. Matthew 24, 44, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. If you're expecting Him to come, He's not coming. He's coming when you don't expect Him. Therefore, be ready. Watch therefore, 25, verse 13, For you know neither the day nor the hour. And when it comes to the return of Jesus, He tells us to anticipate His coming, watch for it, be ready for it, He doesn't tell us, figure it out when it will be. In fact, if anything, he discourages us from that. He doesn't answer that question. And when he does, he says, well, nobody knows. 
And don't consider yourself. It's not going to come when you're expecting. Significant in approaching the book of Revelation. I hope you can see the significance of that. Um, let's turn over to Acts chapter 1. We see the same question asked again. And we say Jesus answering it in exactly the same way. In Acts chapter 1, the context here is that Jesus was with his disciples after the resurrection. Chapter 1, verse 3. So Jesus has been crucified on the cross, dead, buried, risen from the dead. He's appearing to his disciples. And he was, verse 3, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's with them 40 days, alive and well, eating with them, drinking with them, talking with them, talking about the kingdom of God. And then, verse 6, when they'd come together, they asked him, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is now the time? When will these things be? Is now the time? And look at how Jesus responds in verse 7. It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Instead, He says, be busy about being my witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This is the theme of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit will come and will empower His disciples and they will be witnesses. First in Jerusalem where they were. About three and a half years they were there. And then they scattered north to Samaria and south to Judea. And then they scattered to the end of the earth. And that's what we, we saw in, uh, in the book of Acts. We preached there. It's fr- thrilling to see the apostles preach uh, Christ crucified, dead, and buried, but risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, and it was thrilling. That message, right? People saw it and repented of their sins. They turned and trusted in Jesus. I exhorted you week after week to follow the example, to be a witness for Jesus. But again, beginning back to Revelation, think about this now, right? I find it super instructive here that when the apostles asked Jesus, Lord, will it be at this time when you restore the kingdom of heaven? When is it? And Jesus says, do the work. He turned away from when, and he said, get to work. There 1 verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father is set by his own authority. But instead, you'll be my witnesses and go and, and spread out. So in, in other words, right? He says, don't concern yourself about when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Concern yourself with spreading the gospel. Jesus says, it's not, time, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. I mean, these are, these are like, like not just a day, but these are just seasons, maybe, maybe years, may, may, maybe decades. Like just a season. It's a season which Jesus might be coming. It's not for you to know even the season which Jesus is going to come. There are many who have done this. I think perhaps the most famous is this book. Hal Lindsey, the late great planet. How many of you have heard of this book before? How many of you have never heard of this book before? Okay, good. good. It's amazing. This book has influenced you, though you don't even know it. 
It um, was published in 1970. Um, it was the number one bestseller for the decade. 1970, which book in 1970 sold more copies than any other book in the world? This book right here, The Late Great Planet Earth. Went through more than 30 printings. In its lifetime, 28 million copies sold. In the book, Hal Lindsey laid heavy emphasis upon Israel that after 2,000 years of exile, on May 14, 1948, as a result of the Belfair Declaration, Israel was declared a state, May 14, 1948. Then he quoted Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 34, which we didn't read, but right there in that context. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this takes place. And Hal Lindsey writes this. He says, what generation? Obviously, obviously in context, the generation that would see the signs, chief among them, the rebirth of Israel, a generation in the Bible is something like 40 years. If this is a correct deduction, then within 40 years or so of 1948, all of these things could take place. Many scholars have studied the Bible prophecy all their lives and believes this is so. So he said, maybe 1988 or so, or season, this is when Jesus would come and return. So it was so successful that he followed it up with another book, the 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. See, the first book was published in the 1970s, 28 million. He's like, okay, I've got a good thing here. And he talked about the 1980s. He wrote towards the beginning of this book, he says, quote, The goal of this book is not merely to show which prophecies have been fulfilled since the late great planet Earth came out in 1970. However, even more important, it's intended to analyze what will occur in the decade we have just entered. So he's anticipating what's going to happen in, in the 1980s. During the 25 years I've been studying prophecy, I have seen incredible events forecast 3,000 years ago happen right before my eyes. We're living in the time of the fulfillment of all this from the Old Testament, is what he said. Especially in the last 10 years, I've watched current events push us toward the climax of history, the prophets foretold. I believe many people will be shocked by what is happening right now and by what will happen in the very near future. The decade of the 1980s could very well be the last decade of history as we know it. Near the end of the book, Lindsay quotes again, Matthew 24, verse 34, it speaks about that generation won't pass away until all these things take place. And he says this, we're the generation he was talking about. I say that because unmistakably, for the first time in history, all the signs are coming together at an accelerating rate. This is kind of interesting to hear what he's talking about, about all these things coming together. He says this, what do I mean? Look around you and see. Earthquakes are increasing in frequency. The greatest period for quakes in history is forecast for 1982. How you forecast earthquakes, I have no idea. You can ask my wife from California, and we've not figured that one out yet. Famine spreads as population explodes. Pollution threatens our survival. Israel has been miraculously reborn as a nation. The U.S. is fading as a superpower. I find that sort of humorous, <laughs> that we were fading 40 years ago. We, yeah, we are fading, but we're pretty strong here 40 years, 70 years later. The Red Chinese continue to build their awesome army. Arabs and all the world's Muslims threaten a war that would destroy the state of Israel. All the world's powers appear ready to involve themselves in the Middle East war because of their need for oil. The European community of 10 grows stronger 
and um, is doubting the effectiveness of the U.S. as an ally. I think the war in Ukraine, Europe understands the U.S. as an ally. <clears throat> Nuclear holocaust seems more possible every day. All these signs, he says, and many more, which are just as visible, point to the fact that this generation is the one that will see the end of the present world and the return of Christ. These books sold super well in the 1970s and then the 1980s, but as time has passed and Jesus hasn't returned, these books don't sell well today. And Hal Lindsey is a false prophet. Can you see how silly these things sound now? In retrospect, whatever, 40 years later, my, I, do you talk this way? Oh, Jesus might come back. I see the signs. He, this generation could be the one. It could be the one. What's it going to look like in 100 years, your words, if Jesus doesn't come? You may not have written it down in a book, but you may have told your unsaved friends, oh, Jesus is coming back in this generation. And when they see the years go by, they're like, well, what else does he believe? That was foolish. Edgar Wissenhunt wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It's been rumored that in 1989 he wrote 89 reasons why he will, rapture will occur in 1989. I couldn't find that book, but that was the... Harold Camping. Remember with Harold Camping? Family Radio. It's out in California. That's why you got it. Family Radio in Oakland, California is where it started. He wrote a book called 1994, question mark. And he predicted that Christ was returning September 9th, 1994. I remember listening to him on the radio just kind of thinking like, okay, so what's going to happen come September 10th? September 10th came, and he was like, um, well, Jesus removed himself from the church. That's what happened. Later calculations came May 21st, 2011 as a day to return. Well, he did, that didn't happen either. So he calculated October 25th, 21st, 2011, and he thought, as this billboard said, well, the third time would be the charm. Christ didn't return. Harold Camping is dead. Harold Camping's a false prophet. He prophesied falsely. And we can look at this now, and it's, it's sort of humorous. Lots of people caught up in this. Lots of people left the church in September of 1994 following him. There are many other false prophets who've prophesied falsely when it comes to the return of Christ. I, I think about the Millerites. William Miller was instrumental in the forming of the Seventh-day Adventist church. He predicted the return of Christ October 22nd, 1844. And when Jesus didn't return, it was called the great disappointment among many of his followers. And many of his followers kind of adjusted and then started the Seventh-day Adventist church. A church that started because of an eschatological error. Listen to the experience of a man named Henry Emmons who was a Millerite, he said, I waited all day Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to faint, and before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chambers. My natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any 
pain, sick with disappointment. Something is incredibly wrong about that experience, is it not? Anticipating, knowing that you know the day, even Jesus said no one knows the day. Anticipating, believing it, like he's going to come, and he doesn't come. And here we are almost 200 years later looking back like, missed it a little bit. Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus came in 1914, the beginning of the invisible presence of Jesus. The signs of Matthew 24 began to occur. I remember talking with a Jehovah's Witness, and I didn't know this, um, and they said, yeah, Jesus returned in 1914. I was like, like, really? And the first time I heard this, I like laughed at him, like, what are you talking about? Oh, isn't it obvious? Like, it's not obvious. But he came invisibly. Foundational to the doctrine is that Jesus came Okay, so it all comes back to the question I'm asking. When will these things be? We err, I believe. We err when we try to set any sort of time frame for the return of Jesus. I believe we err when we set any sort of time frame for the return of Jesus. I know that many of our day and age look to Israel, they read current events, they read the newspapers, they look at the compacts that are solved in Israel, they look at what's happening there in the Middle East, they look at Russia, they look at Afghanistan, they look at Russia, they look at the United States, look at Afghanistan, look at all this stuff, and with eager anticipate, they say that the Lord's going to return on my lifetime. I I just, I believe it's so. Think about them a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries. I say maybe the Lord will return, and maybe he won't. But many times, in their zeal for these things, it leaps into their evangelism. They tell their non-Christian friends about having been reading the Bible and, and, and looking into Revelation and, and seeing what's taking place in the world, and they're convinced that Jesus is probably coming back in this generation. Therefore, they say, repent and turn to Jesus and trust in Him before it's too late because He's coming back. And when Jesus doesn't come back this year or next year, or the next five years, the next 10 or 15 years, these, these friends begin to think themselves, well, my, my friend was so certain about the return of Jesus, but that's not happened yet. How can he be so sure about other things in the Bible that sound so far-fetched, like the resurrection, like the need to repent? And, and rather than the return of Jesus giving them reason to believe, The return of Jesus is giving them reason not to believe because they've asserted strongly and they've just waited and it hasn't happened. And they're like, well, if that's what he believes, how can I trust anything else he says? And the delay gives reason not to believe, not because the return of Jesus is wrong, all right? What's wrong? It's the confidence with which people say we're living the last times. He's coming back soon. He's coming back, probably in our generation. It's the confidence which with when is being said that leads things to be wrong. Jesus said, when will these things be? He says, it's not for you to know. Is it now you're going to restore Israel? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Just get work. Get, get to work. In 2 Peter 3, it's interesting that uh, we read of Peter talking about the second coming. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
He then says about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, right, the delay of the return of Jesus is opportunities to repent for sure. Because Jesus will come like a thief in the night. He's going to destroy the earth, going to catch many off guard like a thief does. But we err when we place time frames on his return so that the unbelieving are not led to repentance but they're led to question the truthfulness of what you're telling them because what you're saying is false because he hasn't returned yet. We've proven ourselves to be false prophets in predicting time frames. Oh, he's coming back soon. He's coming back in our generation. And our unbelieving friends mock the return of Jesus. Not because it's not true, but because of our prophecies that we have made. Now, we need to be careful here, right? Because He may return in our lifetime. We shouldn't deny that. Let's try this. And furthermore, not only may He return, we are commanded to eagerly await His coming. Paul told Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that the people of God are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. God's people are waiting anticipating the time when he would would come. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long? Longing for God to come and make things right. But as Paul told Titus to wait for this blessed hope of the appearing, for 2,000 years God's people have been doing this. We've been waiting for the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. And think about that. Think about 1,900 years. What was the experience of all those people? They have waited and 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 and passed away, never seeing the return of Jesus. And we might be one of those as well, who might well pass away without seeing the return of Jesus. That may be our experience. Or we may see the sun darkened. And the stars fall from the sky and the powers of heaven shaken and Jesus appearing over all the earth for all the tribes of the earth to see him coming with great power and glory. And what a day that will be. And that may come in our lifetime. Or may not. But most every generation that's lived from Jesus has not experienced the coming of Jesus. They're hoping, as we are, but they haven't experienced it. I trust 1,900 years of track record. He hasn't come back yet. Who are you and your audacity to predict he's going to come back in our generation? If he tarries for another 500 years, how foolish will you look? How convinced you will be? So let us not set dates. Let us not set times. Let us not set seasons of when it might take place. Oh, believe in the return of Jesus. But believe that you don't know the time. God's time is not our time. Beforehand, 1st, 2nd Peter, chapter 3, verse 8, when talking about the return of Jesus, Peter said this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. His time frame is not our time frame. God doesn't call us to know or guess or try to figure out when He's coming. When asked point blank, when will these things be? He either ignored it or He said, it's not for you to know. Why do we want to know? Are you pre-trib? Are you post-trib? 
post-millennial, how are you? What are you? When's it coming? Is it coming? God tells us, don't predict these times. His time frame is different than our time frame. We may miss the coming by a thousand years. But we need to be ready for his return. Here's the tension, right? Be ready, anticipate it, long for it. Just don't predict when it'll be. You don't do that. That's hard. People might think, oh, that's good for evangelism. It's not. It's harmful. Because people see that he delays and then they mock your message. Okay. In coming to Revelation, I think that we need to keep these things in tension. Ready for his return. Aware of the things that must take place, Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, but not setting time frames for his return. Now, our difficulty in America is that we live in a culture that reads Revelation futuristically and is relentlessly curious about when these things will take place. And what I mean by this is that our culture has been so influenced by Hal Lindsey, you don't even know how influenced our culture has been. And maybe Hal Lindsey was the 1970s, 1980s. In more recent days, the Left Behind series has taught billions of Americans their theology of the end times, which is all fanatical, all like hoping, all like it's a presupposition of what they think will happen. And it has driven Americans to be, is this going to be the time? Is this when it is? Is this when it is, right? Longing for that. And so much so that the default way to read Revelation is through this futuristic lens that begs us to interpret Revelation in accordance with the current news, right? Discern the times. See what's happening in this world. And then know when Jesus is returning. Or at least the season when he's returning. It's not for you to know the seasons. And I believe this can easily cultivate within us, actually, an unhealthy perspective of the book of Revelation. Because when you read the book, looking to figure out when Jesus will return, Jesus himself has told us, that's not your focus. So do you know that there are several ways to read Revelation? I just want to share a few with you, hopefully to give you a perspective. First of all is the futuristic way. I think that's what America believes, right? The futuristic way about everything in Revelation 6 and following is all describing the future events of the world. We just need to kind of like match them up with the world and, and where things are going. Now, I don't need to say much about this. This is the common view in America. But let me just say there are other ways to read Revelation, which solid believers down through church history have read it differently than we read Revelation. Okay? We in America are like slanted, like we're, we're so into this future that, that we don't realize that apart from America or apart from the 1850s, whatever, people read Revelation differently. For 1,500 years they read it differently. There's a a preterist approach. You can read Revelation with a preterist lens that simply means the past, a past perspective. That is, much of Revelation has already taken place, with the exception of chapters 21 and 22, right? People who read it this way think that most of this happened regarding A.D. 70 when the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Now, I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying to our ears, that sounds so foreign, 
It's because, the reason it sounds foreign is because we're so steeped in our futuristic understanding of Revelation, we can't even see it. But there are parts of Revelation that do describe the past. Right? One of the things with futuristic is that everything, okay, chapter 6 and following is the future. Well, come with me to Revelation chapter 12, and you try to describe how that's all in the future. It's not. It's a, it's a big picture of redemption. It's talking about Jesus being born and Satan going after Jesus and then going after his offspring. That's like going back in the past. Further, reference to ancient Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. This is ancient Babylon, what took place in the past and how it's a picture of maybe Rome and maybe some other places, but, you know, those who take the predators, they tell, well, oh, that's a picture of what happened to Rome. It may sound strange to you, listen, but there are men who we respect greatly who believe this. Like R.C. Sproul is a preterist. Ligonier Ministries promotes this view. I would say you take anything from Ligonier Ministries, read it. It's going to be beneficial to your soul. Now, listen, they believe this view not because they're liberal, but because they think the best way to understand the book of Revelation is to understand much and most of it has been fulfilled already. They take the words of the book of Revelation very seriously, especially the words from the very first verse. Turn it in Revelation. You can look at the very first verse of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. Hey, these things are taking place soon. They, they, soon. These things are going to take place soon. And they say it was certainly soon, particularly as first century believers. So they're trying to wrestle with the text. It's not that they're liberal. And all I'm trying to do here is just say this. Right? We're so saturated with a futuristic view, we can't see anything else. There is some validity to a preterist view. People who believe the Bible strongly embrace preterist view of Revelation. Right? Now, I don't have difficulty with that. But I'm not going to speak badly against those who do. Oh, they're just liberals. Oh, they just deny. Oh, they're just symbolically. They're allegorically. Like, like no, these are Bible-believing people who take this view. And I want you to grab this in perspective. Last thing I want us at Rock Valley Bible Church is to be proud in our own eschatology so much that we shoot down others and, and see them as not in the, the Christian camp. They, they are. It's interesting when you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. It doesn't say anything about the timing of the return of Jesus. It just says we need to believe in the return of Jesus. They're wise enough to know that it's not the timing that separates Christians. It's the fact that Jesus is coming back. There's another way to read Revelation, and that's historical you can read it through the historical lens. That is, the book of Revelation describes church history. Now, to the first century readers, it was history. It was future, rather. But to us, having lived 2,000 years later, it is, it is past. Now, again, this might sound strange to our ears, but this is the view of those in the Reformation predominantly. This is the view of many Puritans who we look up to and would admire for their writing. Read the Puritans. If you haven't done it, read them. They're fabulous. They believed in more of a historical perspective of the book of Revelation, which I find difficult. But I'm not going to bash them for that. So let's embrace in charity different views of Revelation. There's another way to read Revelation. It's the idealistic view. It's the idealistic lens. This, this is the take on Revelation that embraces apocalyptic literature and understands the apocalyptic literature as so symbolic that actually what, what happens is that Revelation isn't so much teaching about the literal fulfillments 
as it is more, more principles and philosophies of, of light and dark and good and evil and God and His judgment and His just righteousness coming up. One of the things you see about apocalyptic is it's very black and white. It's very, this is true, this isn't true. Very yes or no. There's like the no gray area in apocalyptic, but setting up like these ideals, the ideals of God's kingdom, a, a philosophy of how to look at history and how to look at, at the future with God in control. And again, many who take this approach don't do so because they're liberal. They look at Revelation that way because the genre of Scripture is apocalyptic. And, and, and they read the, the Jewish apocalyptic literature that took place in Second, Second, Second Temple Judaism. And, and they see the apocalyptic literature that was out there, and they seek to understand it in light of the, the, the literature of the day. Not because they're liberal, but they're really wrestling with the text. And I see some validity with that, just I think about the, the visions and this means this and the symbolism and all that there, how much is a one-to-one correspondence and how much is just a picture. What's helpful to know about all these approaches, though, is they're not exclusive. You don't have to land on one of these camps. You don't have to say everything in Revelation is all about the future, nor that everything in Revelation happened in the first century. Nor do you have to say that Revelation is only symbolic of the ideals about how God's judgment works. That's why there's a fifth way to look at the book of Revelation, and I would encourage you all to embrace this way, is the combination. Because there are aspects of Revelation that I think certainly are future, have to be. Revelation 21, 22, for sure. And there are the apocalyptic that embraces there, and there are times it's referencing back to history as well, and there are some things that are fulfilled as well. It doesn't matter how much do you weigh. I'm just adding some layers of complexity when we come to even different texts. Just so you see, we can put on this lens, we see it one way. We look at this lens, we see it another. This lens, we see it another way. It's not clear and cut, straightforward. It's apocalyptic literature. Let me read from a statement Daryl Worley gave. Daryl's the pastor of Grace Church of DuPage, which planted Kishwaukee Bible Church, that planted Rock Valley Bible Church. He said it this way. He said, quote, unquote, quote, Revelation must be interpreted in a manner consistent with other biblical prophecy. Isaiah can be used as a helpful example. Isaiah is certainly anchored in contemporary message historical events which we must know about in order to understand him. Grounded in history, Isaiah 6, in the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah's is prophecy, grounded in history, that's the preterist view. But it leaps forward at times to the end of the age, the final and cataclysmic day of the Lord, like Revelation chapter 13. Therefore, Isaiah not only is preterist, but Isaiah also is futurist. It makes explicit prophecies about things like the return from exile or the coming of Christ, right? In the sense that Isaiah was fulfilled in history. Like, like the virgin birth, right, fulfilled there, talking about the coming of Jesus that, that was partially fulfilled, though he's prophesying of greater things as Isaiah stands there. He says, and whatever part you read, you understand that he's speaking of things that are universally relevant, even apart from historical setting in which they take place. That's like the idealist view in Isaiah chapter 25. He said, the point is the prophets blend and weave these different interpretive schemes together so that no one of them covers the entire book. They're all knotted together. It's as though their prophetic consciences, time collapses. They interpret all events from God's point of view. 
I just encourage you to consider viewing and reading Revelation with different lenses to see how it all, all works out, rather than just this future, this future perspective. And, and understand, that's how biblical prophecy works. It's anchored in the time of the author, but it's directed towards the future. It prophesies of things in the future that from our perspective have been fulfilled, therefore they become historic, and it sets forth universally relevant principles of how God's judgment works. It's how prophecy works. It's how revelation works. It's not just one thing. It's just not all future. You don't need the newspaper to all line it up and how it is. D.A. Carson said it this way. Revelation, the book of Revelation, must be interpreted in light of the first century understanding with a view to the end of history, sensitive to the principles that are true for all time. All mixed together. So, as it comes to the book of Revelation... I do not believe that we should approach the book of Revelation trying to figure out when it will all take place. If we do, I'll prove myself to be a false prophet. And I don't want to do that. I don't want people, my, my great-grandchildren reading, Oh, that's great-grandpa Steve. Look what he said. Oh, he believes that Jesus is coming to that generation. Here it is, a hundred years later, he's not. I don't want to be a false prophet. I, every word that comes from my mouth, I want to be true and you can take it to the bank. You're not going to find me setting dates. You're not going to find me trying to set up things with history. Uh, Jesus said don't. Jesus said don't. I'm not going to do it. But we need to long for his return. And my hope in preaching through Revelation is that, that it would stir you in a deep longing for the return of Jesus. My hope in preaching through Revelation is that you'd embrace the good news of his coming judgment. Psalm 98 today. Let the heavens rejoice before the Lord. Why? He's coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in equity. Let's rejoice. All of creation rejoicing at the coming judgment of God. Let us rejoice at the coming judgment of God. My hope is that preaching through Revelation would lead you to trust in the Savior who's got the world and its history in His hands. My hope is that preaching through Revelation is not that you will know everything about the timing of His return, but will trust the fact of His return. So I come back to my question I began with this morning. When will these things be? When will Jesus return? What's good is He gives us an answer. All right? He, he, he didn't give an answer in Matthew 24. He didn't give an answer in Acts chapter 1. But at the end of Revelation, He gives us an answer. And it's the answer I want you to be satisfied with. So turn to Revelation chapter 22. Jesus tells us when he will return, he says it several times. Look at verse 7. Jesus says this, And behold, I am coming soon. Kind of gives insight into chapter 1, verse 1, by the way. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So when is Jesus coming? He's coming soon. Now, to those in the first century who received the revelation... Soon, in their mind, meant something different than Jesus meant when he said soon. Soon meant some 2,000 years. And for us, soon may mean another 2,000 years. Soon doesn't mean now. It, it may be, but it may be a while. We don't know. But we must long for the return of Jesus until then. 
will be blessed, as it says in verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecy of this book. Chapter 1, verse 3, that's how it started. There's blessing in Revelation. We submit and obey to the words that Jesus has for us. When's he coming? He's coming soon. All right, in case we, we missed that, he tells us again in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He's coming soon, and when he's going to come, he's going to come with justice. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to bring the righteous into himself. To those who rebelled against the Lord, he's going to bring judgment. To those who trust in the Lord, he's going to bring salvation. That's what it means. I'm going to bring the recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus will come when? Soon. If that wasn't enough, the same message comes in verse 20, the first part. He who testifies to these things says so. He says, surely I am coming soon. So when you say, well, is Jesus coming? I think you can reply to people, Jesus says he's coming soon. If they, in their mind, think that that means this generation, so be it. Just like Jesus, that's what he's promised. That's the language. He says, coming soon. It's been a while. And it may be us, and it may be a while. But when people ask you what you think about the return of Jesus, when's he coming? He's coming soon. Hope you recognize this, because this is the theme of Revelation. That's why we cry out with John, come, Lord Jesus. It's the theme that I have chosen for us as Revelation. That when we're done with Revelation, I pray that this would be your passion and your prayer. Just to come, Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm coming soon. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. He says, I'm coming soon. And with that, we need to be satisfied. Let's not set times or seasons. Let's not set days. No one knows that. Let's be about the work of spreading the gospel. Realize he's returning soon. And let us rejoice in that. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you might help us in these things to rightly understand Revelation. Help us, O oh God, to really settle in our hearts. God, what's important, how to see, how to read the book of Revelation. I pray that you would guard me not to make false statements that would look foolish in 300 years. To exhort people thinking that some pressure of my concocted imagination of when you're coming would be more effective than the simple words, you're coming back soon. I pray for all of us that our language here at Rock Valley Bible Church might be appropriate. That may we balance this tension of, of waiting for you and expecting you <clears throat> in our generation and yet realizing that you may tarry, you may delay. But may our prayer always be through revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. So I, I pray, oh Lord Jesus, that, that you would come and that you would come soon, as you've said. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.